It's a great honor and privilege to be with you again. Uh, those of you who were here uh, Friday night and some of the men I saw Saturday morning, just a fantastic uh, place to be, a grace place. And, you know, your pastor has been a great friend of mine for many years. But the thing about Joseph is he is so energetic for the gospel. And he told me that he was sick the other day and actually had to go on some steroids or something. And I said, man, the church must have exploded during that during that time or shrunk or you exploded. We bring you grace and peace from Reformed Theological Seminary. And I am delighted to see the missionaries here who are the live there in your pastoral staff, including your interns. Your, that's the living vision of Reformed Theological Seminary of, of men of God who are grounded in the inerrancy and the infallibility of the word of God, uh, who are who have a, a passion for the Great Commission and who believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, to God's glory alone, the old Reformed faith, that's what we do. It's, it's a very simple but profound and poignant ministry that the Lord has given us. And so I'm coming in at a certain phase of this, but it's been going on for pretty soon 50 years and almost 13,000 alumni, and right now somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 students over eight campuses in the United States, including a virtual campus, two of those are extensions, and then the Lord has blessed us with two international locations. So Reformed Theological Seminary, as I was telling Joseph, has a lot of moving parts. It takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of support and encouragement. And I tell you, it is not without attack, because when you are not leaning on the federal government, as I was telling them, we're kind of the Hillsdale and the, uh, the Grove City of the seminary world, when you don't lean on the federal government, when you don't have tenure, and yet you keep your faculty long periods of time, but when you trust in the Lord and keep you on your knees, and I know our chairman is here today, Richard Bridgeway, and there have been... Many t- every time we meet, it's a time of going to the Lord in prayer. But you know what? That's the way our founders wanted it, and that's a good thing. It's a good way to be. So greetings from Reformed Theological Seminary. I am so thankful to be part of this missions conference. And I've got a question before we get into the reading of Scripture. It is, in fact, the question that I believe could have been asked when Mark, no doubt, sitting at the feet of Peter, began to try to get it the message he needed to gather up to go to probably the Roman Christians who were about to go through persecution. The door, as we heard our Russian pastor or brother say, was being was being, as it was being closed in some ways in Russia, it's, it, it's being closed in some ways through the loss of religious liberties and the attack of the evil one in the West. It was being closed then and persecution was about to happen. And there was a singular question that was burning. It's this question. What is it to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ? 
You say, well, that's a very elementary question. Yes, it's very elementary, but it's also very fundamental. To miss the answer to that question is, is to miss the gospel, is to miss Jesus, is to miss eternity. But it is also to miss how to live in the midst of trials. How to miss living and serving the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of persecution. And it is also to miss the fundamental nature of the gospel and the essential nature of a disciple. We're going to see that this morning as we go into this passage. You've got your Bibles open to Mark chapter 6. The story I'm going to read of the sending of the twelve is recorded in Matthew 10. And there the entire chapter is taken up with the sending. It is found in Luke 9, more brevity there, and with Mark, characteristically Mark, he moves like an impressionistic painter with big globs of bright primary colors across the pages of Scripture, painting the story of the gospel, moving with urgency, as it were, to get this message to Roman Christians, to get this message to us. That we may know what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. That we may know who Christ is and what it is to follow Him. And so in only six verses, in only a few verses, we see verses 7 through 13, the sending of the apostles. Now what I want you to see is rather the six verses before then is the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth. Now, I'm not going to read those. But I want you to see it because it's important because it's the way Mark communicates. Matthew seems to have the ability, seems to have the luxury, if you will, of time. A luxury I don't have this morning. Mark doesn't have that. He moves quickly. And so what Mark does, some scholars call, he panels his stories. And so he tells the story not only with words, but in the literary construction of the entire gospel. So by panels, if you're paneling up a room in a house, or you're putting together Lincoln logs to build a, uh, to build a house. So Mark panels together stories, and when you read one narrative, because Mark is moving so briskly, It is important to read the narrative before and the narrative after because Mark is going to be casting a message in the very literary presentation of the gospel. And so before Mark gets to the sending of the twelve, now remember you probably are a Christian sitting in a cave or somewhere else, maybe in a home, a private home in Rome, and there's been talk of outbreak of persecution and maybe someone in your own family has already felt that and and there's been a lot of questions and your pastor has received this letter from from Mark and he's he's there to read it to you and as you're hearing the letter read there are no chapters the way we have today but as you're hearing the letter read you hear the first six verses of our chapter six And that Jesus Christ offended his own people at Nazareth. 
and that he was rejected. And he could do no mighty work there. You hear that and you're thinking about that. Huh. Jesus rejected in his hometown. Then you hear verses 7 through 13 read, which I'm about to read. You're still kind of dealing with that, and you get to verses 14 through 29, which deal with the beheading of John the Baptist, who was the greatest of all. All of a sudden, the panels are coming together, and the wall before you is clear. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is costly. The kingdom is advancing through hardship and trial. But because of the ruling motif of the cross, we learn in the gospel that the very thing that seeks to destroy us becomes the thing that advances us. And you know what? It's that way in your life today. And it's that way in our missionaries' lives. The opposition that comes against them is going to be the very thing that Jesus uses to propel them. What is it to be a true disciple? Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 7, the inerrant and the infallible word of the living God. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, let me preach as if never to preach again as a dying man to dying men. In Jesus' name, amen. I was getting closer to my Ph.D. and farther from God. I was going to the University of Wales at the same time planting a church in Kansas. I don't advise that. That really stretches you going back and forth across the ocean. It's why Joseph has black hair and I have white hair. But I enjoyed it. I loved the study. And I always knew that somewhere, somehow, I would serve the Lord. The Lord was calling me to serve Him somehow in theological education, though my heart was in the pastorate and in missions. I'm glad He called me to RTS because RTS has a DNA of the Great Commission, a DNA of missions and evangelism. It's the it's right place for me. And He knew that, and so He sent me to seminary. Jim Boyce, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce had told me, Mike, the pulpit is deserving of the highest scholarship the church has to offer. So for five years as I pastored, I went back and forth across the ocean and had a house at a little church in Gorsinan, Wales. 
And there, May and I would live in the house, and I would do my studies. And the deal was, I would get to go preach on Sunday, relieving the pastor, Mr. Morgan, of his duties. He had no assistant pastor, and it was about two or three hundred, which is a mega church in South Wales. And so I could live at the uh, at the bungalow, and then in Ilston, Wales, and then preach at Gorsinan. That was the deal. One day he he came to me. He said, uh, he said, Mr. Milton. He said, Would you? And I got to tell you, this fellow, Mr. Morgan, was the classic Welsh preacher in terms. He was so theatrical. Now he wasn't fake. That's just the way he preached. For instance, he had a lock of hair, a Dylan Thomas-like lock of hair, and he had the ability to throw the hair back and then point like this. And I mean, he was the Anthony Hopkins of uh, preachers. And he would call out in the middle of the service, uh, You, Mrs. Cox, is it not true that you are a liar? And uh, you were a gadabout and all of that. And then God changed you. Is that not true? She'd say, Aye, it's true, Mr. Cox. And this is in the congregation of a couple of hundred. Is it not true, Mr. Jenkins, you were a drunk? And you're ashamed of your family and ashamed to this community. Is it not true, sir? And he'd say, Aye, it's true, Mr. Morgan. And one time he said, and Mr. Milton. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> so he came to me, Mr. Milton. He said, would you like to see my library? You've never been to the manse, have you? I said, I would love to see your library. He said, oh, you're going to be fascinated by the books that are in there. I said, yes, indeed. So I preached the evening service and we walked down the quaint street of Gorsain in Wales, and we went into the manse on Alexandra Street, and, and we had our tea and sandwiches, and May and Joe Michael was just a, a wee little fellow, and finally, I, I was waiting to see the library. He said, well, do you really want to see it? He was baiting me. He was just throwing that line out, and I said, oh, yes, I do want to see it. Yes, I do want to see it. So he said, come on, follow me. So we walk up the stairs. It was dark. And he puts his hand on the doorknob and then he turns dramatically. Are you sure you want to see it? Yes, I want to see your library. I mean, by now, this was, this was some great mystery about to be unveiled. So he opens the door. It's completely black. He puts his hand on my shoulder as if to protect me. And he cuts the light on. And it's shelf after shelf. After shelf, after shelf of glorious emptiness. He said, well, what do you think? I knew I'd been had. I said, well, oh, I, oh, I see. You, you don't know why the shelves are empty. Oh, he said, but there's my library. And there was an oaken table in the midst there. And there was the Bible laid open. He says, I have 66 books in my library, Mr. Milton. I said, okay. He said, you see, I was depending too much. He was a lot older than I am even now, then. I was depending too much in my ministry on others and not enough on the Word of God. I wasn't preaching the Word of God, but preaching other things. And I, and I felt the Lord tell me, get rid of all of them. And I was thinking, where are they? I wish I could get a hold of them. 
He said, now look here, which is what a Welshman says when he's really upset with you and he wants to tell you something. Now look here. I've watched you with those university boys, Mr. Milton, and you're doing good work, but you're losing your passion. And there in that empty room, except for the, the Bible on that oaken table, I came face to face with the reality of what I think Mark is teaching in this passage from Mr. Morgan, that we are called to be taught, but we are taught to be sent. That's the answer. What is a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Look at your Bibles. The Bible says here that he called the twelve. And so to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ is to be called. And surely the Lord Jesus Christ walked along the shores of Galilee. And there along the shores of that lake he met Andrew. And, and he met uh, Simon, fish merchants. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And he called them and they left their nets. They left their boats. They left their businesses to come and follow him. And surely to be a believer is to be called, is to have heard the call. There is a general call going out today all over the world where faithful churches are gathered. The call is repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's coming to you today. Now, through the power of the Holy Spirit and his word, repent. Turn from your sin and trusting in yourself and trust in Jesus Christ alone. In the timeless cross. In the one who lived the life you couldn't live and died the death which should have been yours. Receive Him. He will receive your sins and you will receive His life. And you will be transformed, saved from eternal hell and given a new life and an eternal life. A general call and an effectual call we understand that comes into our lives and our, and our hearts understand. You know, for many years, my Aunt Eva gave me that call on her knee as an orphan boy in Louisiana. Wherever Louisiana is from Highlands Presbyterian Church, I can't figure that out. I heard it every day, the call. But it was not until D. James Kennedy opened up Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and told me that salvation came only by His grace, not through works, and no one's ever going to boast. And that call of Aunt Eva, the call of God through Aunt Eva, became effectual at that moment. And then there was another call, you see. And this call was a, was a call to ministry. It's a call the missionaries have heard, your pastoral staff has heard. It's a call that each and every one of us hear in a different way. What do we do to serve Jesus? We're all called. Spurgeon said you're either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is called to share Jesus Christ with the world in his or her own way, in his or her own world. Before I went to seminary, my Aunt Eva was 97 years of age, and we were caring for her, and uh, we were, she was in a, uh, a nursing home in Kansas City, and the Lord called me to preach, and I was dealing with that. I remember there was a chaplain there by the name of Dr. Eckley, and Dr. Eckley was 91 years old. He should have been a resident 
but he was the chaplain. And he was an old Nazarene preacher. And I remember he came to me, very hard of hearing, and he came to me and he, he really cared for Aunt Eva and was ministered to her in a wonderful way. And he came to me, he says, uh, Mike, but hearing aids on both ears and those not functioning well. Mike, I hear you're going to seminary. I said, yes, Dr. Eckley. <clears throat> yes, Dr. Eckley, I am. Are you called? I said, well, I, uh, I think so. Hey, I, I think so. Oh, well, that won't work. You see, you see, Mike, you and May are going to go through a lot of problems because Satan doesn't like the ministry and doesn't like preachers. And the flesh doesn't like surrendering to the church. And you're going to face a lot of storms and opposition. Oh, there'll be blessings. Blessings will outnumber. They'll outnumber the pain, but there will be pain. Pain enough to drive an ordinary man away running and the only thing that you will have in that day will be your call so when i ask you are you called you better give me a clear answer i don't want you taking miss eva out of here and going through all of that just to be a, a failure but in christ you can't fail if you've been called are you called i said well i'm going to go think about that because that sounds pretty serious a year later i went to seminary took a year to think about it. When I told him I was called, he said, Well, go in my blessing. Are you called? Yes, you are. Do you understand that with that call, you will be sustained? That he who calls will sustain you whatever you go through. As a believer. And if God is calling you today. To follow him into ministry. To follow him deeper into your devotional life. He'll sustain you. A Christian. What is a Christian? What is a true disciple? Well very clearly first of all. It's one who is called. And secondly. It is one who is taught. You'll notice in the passage that. In verse 12, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, why did they do that? You say, well, Jesus charged them to do it. Yes, he also taught them to do it. From the beginning of their following Jesus on the shores of Galilee until this moment, it was a continual classroom environment of Jesus casting out demons, announcing that the kingdom has come. Repent and believe. That's the message of the gospel. And they saw people healed. They saw demonic spirits having to flee at the name of Jesus. So they had been taught. A Christian is one who is called to be taught. Sometimes we resist that. I don't think you do here in this church. A very well taught church. Pastors who are committed to teaching. But I'm telling you that the flesh itself seems to resist these things. Some years ago, Mark Knoll wrote a book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And he began his book by saying, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there isn't any. 
Now, that's rather hyperbolic, and I don't particularly agree with it, but he was making his point. It is a scandal not to sit at the feet of the Master and grow through the Word of God, and you have the opportunity to do that. And what we're doing with missions and the support of missions, we're fulfilling the Great Commission Those of us who have been called are sending others who have been called to a specific ministry to go out and teach whatsoever things I have commanded you. That is a lifelong enterprise, beloved. It doesn't happen in just one encounter. The one encounter can create a new life. That life needs to be nurtured in Christ and to be taught. And so they were sent out and they were teaching. They were called to be taught, and they were taught to be sent. I want you to say that with me. Called to be taught. Taught to be. In Louisiana, where I lived when I was a little boy, a little poverty-stricken, unincorporated area, not far from Magnolia, Mississippi, but on the other side of the border. I remember one summer as a boy. Uh, it, was, it was very hot, as it usually is in South Louisiana, and, and it was dry, hadn't rained in a while. And, and I rode my horse to the back of the pasture. Uh, we raised up on a little five-acre hard scrabble farm, rode my horse to the back of the pasture, and all of a sudden he bucked me off. I, I was wanting to go see the pond. My horse didn't want to go to the pond. He finally threw me, and he ran off. I said, well, I wonder what's going on. So I decided to walk to the pond. Well, the pond was dried up. That wasn't a big pond. It was a pond about the size of this chancel platform area. But it was all dry. There wasn't any water. A few fish were flapping around. That was about it. And then I looked. And I saw a big bullfrog on a stump. And you know that bullfrog, there were flies everywhere. Pardon me for so early on a Sunday morning, but they were just flies, ugly, hideous-looking creatures everywhere, buzzing around just a con all over, devouring the carcass. And this, for a bullfrog, that's just a wonderful place to be. He was just sticking his tongue out left and right, getting those flies. And I, I looked at him. I said, well, I wonder why my, why sugar baby was frightened, my horse was frightened of a bullfrog. And then I looked, and about a foot from that bullfrog was a water moccasin. And he was watching the bullfrog. Bullfrog was feeding, 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 feeding. Had he fed and moved, had he fed and done something with what he had, he would have been okay, but he just, he just fed. And he was a well-fed bullfrog. But like that, he became a lump in the neck of a Louisiana water moccasin. And I ran the other way and dreamed about it for three weeks. You know what? I don't want to be a bullfrog. I don't want to be so well fed that I'm so fat and sluggish spiritually that I can't move. In fact, that's not what Mark was writing to Rome 
to say if, in fact, that's where this letter went. He was writing to say something else. You're called to be taught, and you need to be taught. You need to be grounded. This is who Jesus is, but you've got to go. You've got to go. And they went. They went with a communication. They went together. They went as the church. And they went in the authority of Jesus Christ. And people were healed and demons had to run. And it's always that way. Because the kingdom is going to overpower all the kingdoms of this earth. Called to be. Taught to be. And they close with this. Had a young intern in one of my churches. He was called. He was taught. But he needed to be sent. And go plant a church. And uh, I've always figured uh, a, a church planter is really one man on fire with Jesus Christ and others coming to watch him burn. So I really believe he's got to be an evangelist. So he went and to the community, and he called me one Sunday night. I said, well, how are things going? Tell me about your core group. He said, well, uh, we don't have one yet. I said, well, you know, the, uh, the sands of time and your financial pot uh, uh, are are slowly, quickly going down, you better get a core group. What are you doing? He said, well, I'm doing what you told me to do, to go preach and share Christ and, and just be an evangelist. And, and I said, okay, well, that, that sounds right. Tell me, where are you going? Going to a nursing home? I said, boy, that may not be the best place for the future of the church. He said, oh, no, Mike. He says, very good, very good ministry. I said, well, tell me about it. He said, well, I went in there, and I, like I used to go with you, I was visiting someone that I knew, but then I, I asked if I could go in another room, and, and I did, and there was a lady there, and she was, uh, she was very near death. And in, fa in fact, the family, they were gathered around. And, and so uh, I, I went around, and I'd asked the chaplain if I could go in, so I went in, and uh, they were very uh, concerned, saying their goodbyes, and and so I told them I was a pastor. I said, yeah, what happened? They said, well, they, they, the waters kind of parted, and I kind of came up to this dear lady in her late 90s, and, and I began to uh, I put my hand on her hand and told her I was a pastor, and I asked her if, if she knew Jesus Christ because she was so close to heaven it appeared to him and everyone else. And I just wanted to make sure. And one of the daughters said, you, that is the most insensitive thing for you to do. Where are the officials of this institution to remove this man out of here? And the woman, with whatever strength she had, grabbed her daughter's wrist and said, let him talk. And she came to Christ. I said, that's, that's wonderful. He said, yeah, my, my first member, she's 98 years old and... That's going to be my first member. He said, but here's what happened. I knew she needed to be taught. She was called, but she had to be taught. So I began to teach her the basics of the Scripture. She was living longer than anyone thought. The, the gathering and all of that was anticlimactic because she wasn't ready to die yet. God wasn't ready to take her home. So I began to teach her to sing because she said, you know, I've always wanted to know Him." So I taught her the truth of the scriptures and then taught her to sing hymns. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And other hymns would come 
would waft out in the halls of the nursing home. Some of the Christian nurses would gather at the door and look in at the beautiful scene of the young pastor teaching, discipling this 98-year-old woman. He said, you know, Mike, here's why I called you, because I'm a little upset. I said, yeah? He said, well, I came in today, and the nurse greeted me, and she just shook her head. And I kept walking, and she said, Pastor, you don't need to go in. She was one of the Christian nurses. She said, well, she's home now. She's with the Lord. And this had become his close friend, this 30-year-old minister. And this 98-year-old woman became bonded as pastor and parishioner as brother and sister, as mother and son. He said, but you'll be happy to know she left this world singing. We have been called to be taught. And we've been taught to be sent because there are people out there dying to sing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, seal this word to the hearts of your people for the sake of Christ and the building up of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.